And I'd like, I'd like to ask you a question to kind of get you thinking a little bit here as we begin Psalm 141 this morning. Have you ever called someone out because they were doing something wrong? And then they, or maybe somebody else who happened to overhear that, pointed out that your accusation actually applied to you in some way? In other words, you judged someone else for something when you were guilty too? That ever happened to anybody else? <laughs> no, not you, right? <laughs> Just me. It doesn't work very well, does it? We want to do that. We're dealing with a, a legal matter, right? Where there's a penalty for breaking the law. Then we both deserve to be punished in that case, right? Most of the time, though, I think when something like that happens, we end up kind of trying to sweep the whole thing under the rug. Because we realize that if I call them out, or if I make the accusation against them, or if I bear witness against them of something they've done, some violation, that it's going to come back on me, and so I would rather just let the whole thing go. We see that someone else is doing wrong, and calling them out would expose our own sins, and so we just ignore it. Or, sometimes we just act hypocritically. And we... We try to deny that we're doing anything like what they're doing. We try to justify why we, can, uh, why we can call them out for their sin or their failure and why we're, we're okay. But here's a, a, a question for you to think about. What do you think that does to your prayer life? Do you think that God will hear and answer our prayers if we ignore our own sinful tendencies and our own sinful failures? Do you think that God will hear and answer our prayers if we try to deny or try to somehow deflect attention away from our own sinful failures? These are some of the questions that we're going to look at as we examine Psalm 141. Now this psalm is another psalm of David. You see that in the heading there follows a very similar theme to the previous psalm, which we looked at last week. Um, we don't really have any way of knowing when these psalms were written specifically, um, any historical context here. We don't know if they were intended to go together. Maybe that David wrote these two psalms, or, or maybe several of these, because uh, you remember David wrote eight psalms here, starting in Psalm 138 and going to Psalm 145. Those are all psalms of David. We don't know if this was a, a group that he put together on purpose. Or if they're just written individually in different circumstances, and then later on someone uh, took these psalms and kind of put them together, it's it's really impossible to know. And so there's, but there there are some some threads that kind of seem to bind these psalms together, and and so there do see, seem to be some common threads. Some of that may just be because they're written by the same guy, so he uses some of the same terminology, and and of course we you know we, we may recognize that. But there are some distinct differences too. And, and if you compare, for instance, Psalm 140, Psalm 140 focuses on David's prayer, remember, for deliverance from evil men. That's really the, the main theme of Psalm 140. David is concerned about evil men who are trying to uh, attack him, who are slandering him, who are trying to do everything they can to destroy him. And he's praying. He's asking God to protect him, to save him from them. And so um, last week, 
We said that there, in fact, Psalm 140 is not one prayer. It's actually a series of prayers that David prays. And we said that those prayers teach us a number of things about God. Because David's view of God is very important when he prays. And how he prays reveals something about what he understood to be true about the Lord. And so uh, we understand that God is the Savior. And so as His people, it's right for us to depend on Him for help and for salvation. And I'm not talking about spiritual salvation. Understand, most of the time in the book of Psalms, when the word save or salvation is used, it normally means salvation from some physical circumstance, some temporal circumstance. It's not usually referred, referring to what we think of as spiritual salvation. All right, That's a different, it's not completely unrelated, but, but that's not primarily the concern. Most of the time, the psalmist is concerned about some circumstance in his life, someone who is out to get him, someone who is attacking him, or some life-threatening situation, and he's praying for literal salvation from that. He wants to be rescued from that circumstance, and that's what he's praying there. And so it's appropriate for us to pray for that, right? It is appropriate for us to pray for safety when we're in a bad situation, when we find ourselves vulnerable, or when there's a sickness or something else that comes along, and and we pray for God to save, we pray for God to heal, we pray for God to protect us. That's a good thing for us to do. In fact, praying for salvation from the Savior is something that should be a primary thing that we do um, over and above to be preferred over searching for ways to solve our problems ourselves. Most of the time, we try to solve the problem ourselves and we make it worse. So we're better off going to the Lord and asking for His help. And that's what Psalm 140 is all about. God is our Savior, the one true and faithful King who rules over His people and over this world. We can trust God to right the wrongs and do justice for His people. We really can and that's the theme of Psalm 140 that David is, 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 is speaking on. But here's the thing about Psalm 141 that's interesting, a slight different, because there's some similarities, but something different. Psalm 141 reminds us that if we're going to pray for help, if we're going to look to the Lord for salvation from difficult circumstances, from trials, from people who want to hurt us or harm us or oppose us, We have to consider the importance of our obedience to God. Right? It is appropriate to pray that wicked people will get what's coming to them. We we kind of touched on that last week. It is appropriate for us to pray for justice for ungodly, wicked people. But aren't we guilty too? When I start praying for God to judge or for God to, to, to reward uh, wicked people with uh, the penalty of their wickedness, when I, when I start asking for God to allow the consequences of their sin to come on them so they will experience that, do those prayers for justice mean that I'm asking God to bring down His wrath on me because I'm guilty? You see the, the, the problem here with praying the way Psalm 140 would have us pray. And Psalm 141 is going to bring this issue up. Again, not denying anything that Psalm 140 said at all. But the Psalms speak about, touch on some different things here. 
How can we pray for evil to return upon the wicked without condemning ourselves? That's another way of putting this question. Or will God just not hear our prayer if we pray it hypocritically? God, judge those people, but leave me alone. <laughs> don't, don't come down too harshly on me, but make sure you really get those guys over there. Okay. Well, Psalm 141, I think, addresses these questions and these issues actually very effectively. Primarily by means of an example. So David gives us a picture here in this psalm. It's a picture of a man. Um, in fact, I would say this is a picture of a man whose prayer for salvation and for rescue will be heard and answered. This man is not a hypocrite. The man that we'll see here in Psalm 141 is not a hypocrite. He's not denying his own sin. He's not pretending that he doesn't have weakness. He's not saying, God, judge those people, but it, all the while ignoring his own, his own sin. He's not a coward. He's not a coward who just sweeps everything under the rug because if he confronts evil, it means he's going to have to own up to his own evil, his own contribution. This is a man who is faithful. So I've entitled this message, The Posture of a Faithful Man. Because David describes for us, and he uses physical terms throughout the psalm uh, to show us the posture. What does this man look like? This faithful man. This man who prays, and his prayer is heard. So let's look at Psalm 141, and let's read through it, and then we'll see how David describes this faithful man. So uh, just follow along with me there. Psalm 141, a psalm of David, Lord, Yahweh, I cry to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Yahweh, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. And do not let me eat of their delicacies. Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. Let not my head refuse it. For still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. Their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff, and they hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave, as when one plows and breaks up the earth. But my eyes are upon you, O God, the Lord. Literally, Yahweh... Adonai, Yahweh, the Lord, the ruler. In you I take refuge. Do not leave my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares they have laid for me and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape safely. Let's pray and ask the help of the Lord as we examine uh, His Word. Father, I thank You this morning for the, the precious truths we've been given here in Your Word. Lord, help us as we study them. I do not want to risk twisting them or misrepresenting them in any way. We want simply to see and understand clearly 
the message of your word, what it would have for us to know and what it would have for us to do today. And Father, I pray that you would, as we hear the word, as we consider it, you would apply it to our hearts by your spirit. Change us um, and use your word as the instrument. Help me to be uh, your mouthpiece, to simply uh, uh, your instrument that you could use uh, to accomplish this, uh, this goal of transforming by the power of your word uh, today. And we thank you for that. We ask that you glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Psalm 141, I think on the whole, is fairly straightforward. It does get a little bit challenging, a little bit tricky there, especially in verses 6 and 7, kind of in the middle. Um, I think the overall gist is still fairly clear, um, but we'll look at that when we get to that. Uh, what you notice as you read through it, as what I've already said, David focuses on kind of different parts of the body as he goes through the psalm. And so we get a picture here, in a sense, the posture of a faithful man. And I want to start in verses 1 and 2. And the first thing that David draws our attention to is his hands. Okay, the hands of this faithful man. And what do we see? Well, we see that his hands are raised toward heaven. Uh, you see that there in verses 1 and 2. David really, um, at the, and that, that's the last line of verse 2, right? Lifting up my hands as of the evening sacrifice. But what is that about? Well, he's crying out to God to hear his prayer. But notice what he's asking for is a rapid response. There in verse 1, he asks the Lord, make haste to me. It's not just that it, he, his concern here isn't just that his prayers be heard. Yes, he, he wants his prayers to be heard, but he wants God to act quickly. He wants God to move with haste. Obviously, that would suggest to us that this situation that he's in is a dire situation. There, there needs to be something happening soon because he is in a predicament. And he can't just sit here and wait for too long. It, it, it seems like there's an urgency here. Later on in verses 6 and 7, as we've already, I already mentioned, those verses are a little bit tricky, but they seem to suggest uh, violence and hatred um, perpetrated against the faithful the faithful ones, those who are loyal to Yahweh, and David is one of those. Verses 9 and 10 speak of the snares, the traps, and the nets that they have, had, that they have set in order to capture him, David, and the, and the faithful Israelites who, who are committed to the Lord. And so, uh, again, it sounds a lot like what was going on in Psalm 140. David there was being assaulted by ungodly men, men who had no regard for the truth. They were slanderers character assassins who were, to, who were setting out to tear David down, to destroy his reputation, even to uh, eliminate his ability to rule as king. And so David here in verse 1, he cries out. He, he, he says, Yahweh, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. He's not whispering. right? He's not praying kind of an apathetic kind of prayer. There was a, there's a passion here. In fact, the word cry out there in verse 1 means to state a specific message to someone in order to get a response. So he is expecting a response. That's what he says. When I cry out, I'm speaking to God, expecting, looking for God to respond, looking for God to answer. 
And so he's not just crying out in the air with some sort of wordless ex- exclamation, you know, arg, you know, things like that. He's not just upset and just letting off steam. He's speaking to the Lord, expecting to get a response. There's a, there's a conversation here. He is communicating something. And the second half of verse 1 kind of balances out the first. Remember, Hebrew poetry is all about parallelism. And that's exactly what we have. So the first line of verse 1, Lord, I cry out to you, make haste to me, is then paired with the second line. Give ear to my voice. Notice there's a lot of similarity. When I cry out to you. What's he saying there? He's saying that he wants an attentive ear. He wants the Lord to tune his ear to his voice. I guess we could probably uh, liken this. Maybe the closest thing I can think of for this is a parent who learns the sound of their child's cry. And it always amazes me. I'm not as great at it, but some people can do that. Um, you know, they can hear there's a bunch of kids in the nursery and one of them starts crying and the, the right mom goes, oh, that's mine. I know. I can tell, Right. And, and, and you can, can hear the, why? Because her, her ear is attuned to the voice of her child. So she can differentiate his voice from all the other ones. And that's what David is saying. Lord, I want you to give ear. I want you to pay attention. I want you to tune in to my voice as I'm crying out to you so that you will answer me. It's kind of like having the, you know, the, the, the direct line. You know, she, he's got God on speed dial kind of, that, that's the kind of thought, right? I can dial him up and he will hear me and he will answer me anytime I call him. That's what David is saying. That's what, that's what, he, that's what he wants. The kind of relationship with God that enables him to cry out and in a moment God will hear and answer and respond because the Lord is attuned to David's voice. But notice how verse 2 then David, remember on, in verse 1, he's wanting, he's wanting to have this hearing from God. He's wanting to be able to cry out to God and know that God is going to answer him immediately, speedily. But in verse 2, he kind of balances that out with a commitment to faithful prayer. Because notice what he says there. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And this is interesting. In Exodus 30, God told the children of Israel uh, that they were supposed to build an altar of incense. And they were going to make it out of acacia wood, and they were going to overlay it with pure gold. And that incense altar was not a, it was not a big altar. It was small. The, the, the main altar was big. Uh, you know, big enough that they could put a whole a whole bull on it and, and burn the bull and sacrifice the bull. But the, this incense altar was small. And the incense altar was, was, was for a very specific purpose. Because in that chapter, Exodus 30, God told them how they were supposed to use it. And here's what he says in verses 7 and 8 of Exodus 30. Aaron, the high priest, shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight... He shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before Yahweh throughout your generations. So what is he saying? He's saying every day, all throughout the day, from morning to evening, the tabernacle was supposed to be filled with the scent 
a burning incense. And then, of course, later it's the temple, when the temple replaces the tabernacle. But this altar is then moved to the temple. It becomes that thing where every morning the high priest uh, stirs up the coals and he puts some of that incense on there and it just begins to burn and spread this, the, 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 the smoke of the incense and it fills the tabernacle. So all day long, the smell of that incense is going throughout the tabernacle. And in the evening, when he's lighting the lamps and he's getting ready for the nighttime, he's supposed to go back and do it again and make sure there's always that incense burning in the tabernacle in the temple. Always that smell, always that scent, filling and infusing the whole place with that specific aroma. And the, the incense they were to use was a, was a specific recipe that was restricted only to the Levites and the priests. No one else could make it. No one else could use it. In fact, if you were not a Levite or priest and you were not serving in the temple, but you made your own incense at home and it was really too similar to that incense, you were to be put to death because you were infringing upon that very holy act of worship so what is David saying here? He, he refers to the incense that is always before the Lord. And then he refers to the evening sacrifice. I think what David is saying here is let my prayers be like that incense that was always rising up before God. In other words, David's saying, let my prayers be the constant flow, that constant incense that is always coming up before you. And of course, incense uh, is connected to prayer all through the Bible. Uh, and you get you, you, you could trace it. We don't have time to go through that, but you could look through it and, and look at a concordance or something or look do a, a word search online and, and search for incense uh, in the Bible, and it's connected with prayer. In fact, the book of Revelation talks about the bowls of incense that are the prayers of the people of God that are brought uh, before the throne. And, and the idea is that, 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 that that's what David is doing here. He's saying, I want my prayers to be like those, those, that offering of incense every day, all day. Constantly. That's the, the, my commitment to prayer. But what's interesting is just a few verses before that in Exodus 29, we read that they were supposed to offer two yearling lambs, one each morning and one each evening, along with an offering of flour and oil and wine. And so there was a prescribed method of daily worship of the Lord that was supposed to take place in Israel. And so what David is doing here is I think he's connecting to that but in a personal way. So the priest, every morning and every evening, uh, was offering worship. They would offer the sacrifices of this lamb in the morning along with the flour, the wine, and the oil. The sacrifice of the lamb in the evening with the flour, the wine, and the oil. Every morning, incense on the altar. Every evening, incense on the altar. This was the prescribed method of worship. God had told them to do this. And sometimes <clears throat> I think we have the idea that um, if, if I come up with the idea to do something on my own, it, it's more meaningful than if I do what I've been told to do. Well, when it comes to worshiping God, that's a bad idea. <laughs> that's a bad way of thinking. Because we end up innovating all sorts of things that God doesn't want. And we replace the things God has said. This is what I want you to do. And so they were given this means. This was how you were supposed to worship the Lord. But here's the thing, right? Think about this. If we do, if we were in the Old Testament era, 
And we had that priest in the temple and he's offering these sacrifices every morning and every night and burning incense every morning and every night. Because that's how God told them to worship. It's guaranteed to be received by God. Right? When you come and you give that morning sacrifice or you burn an incense on the altar of incense every morning, guess what? God told you to do that. So of course he's going to accept it because it's exactly what he told you to do. Right? When you approach God and you worship him in the way that he has, uh, he has commanded, the way he has instructed, then your worship is guaranteed to be accepted. Because it's exactly what God told you to do. And that's the idea. And I think that's what David is getting at here. David is saying, listen, you accept the daily worship of the priests, so receive my prayers in the same way. He wants his prayers to be that, uh, that act of worship. And so when David here speaks about his hands being lifted up as an evening sacrifice, he's saying, this is my act of worship. I'm worshiping you. And the, the lifting up of the hands is a really important thing. And we've talked about this before. It's worship. Uh, this is a part of his daily uh, act of consecration. I think that's important. Um, we talked a little bit about that. Remember the, the idea of, of lifting up of hands. Um, I think people today have kind of, we've turned it into something other than what the Bible seems to suggest when the Bible talks about lifting up of hands. Um, we, we've kind of gone, well, it's like that spontaneous, you know, you're at the ball game and, and you know, the, the cleanup hitter hits a home run and everybody cheers. Woo! And they raise their hands in the air. See, that's all we're doing. We're just cheering on God. Well, that's not the picture the Bible gives when it talks about raising hands. The idea of lifting up hands is the idea connected with, it's an acknowledgement of where does the blessing come from. So when I lift up my hands, what am I doing? I'm saying, God, you have given me all the good things you've given me. And I'm praising you for them. I'm making a, a physical kind of connection that my worship is directed toward the Lord. So I'm raising my hands. And so it's not about drawing attention to oneself or anything like that or, or showing off. It's about, it's about connecting that this is where the good comes from. It comes from the Lord. So David says, I'm going to lift up my hands. This is my daily exercise, my daily act of commitment and adoration, my, my daily act of dedication to you as I acknowledge that everything good comes from you. That's what David is saying here. This is what he is committing to. Just like the priests offer the incense and the sacrifices every day, morning and evening, David says, that's, that's my prayers. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. And I want my prayers to be just like those sacrifices, day in, day out, continuously before you. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to bring my, my, my supplication to you. And I'm going to raise my hands. I'm going to acknowledge that you are God and you are good. And so David begins with this, uh, with his hands, hands raised toward heaven. But then he moves on to talk about the next part of this faithful man, and that is his mouth. His mouth. In verse 3, we see that his mouth is under constant guard. Notice what he says there. Set a guard, O Lord, O Yahweh, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. 
David turns his attention here to something else entirely other than the hands that are raised up in prayer. It's a good thing to pray for God's help. It's a good thing to to pray and give thanks to the Lord. It's a good thing to, to worship Him and acknowledge that He is the giver of all good things. Those are good things for us to do. But to kind of go back to the questions we began with, what is David going to do with his own sinfulness? Right? He's saying, listen, Lord, I'm praying to you. I'm coming to you daily, constantly. I'm depending on you. I'm reaching out to you. I'm committing myself to you. Okay. What does he do about his own sinfulness? Right? His solution here is not to try harder. That's what we usually try to do. We figure, you know what? If I want God to hear my prayer, the best thing I can do is to be as good as I can. And if I work hard enough and I do good enough, then God will have to hear me because I will have earned it. We don't usually say it that way, but that's how we tend to think. David doesn't do that. He doesn't make a list of good deeds and try to check them off every day. He doesn't compare himself with the ungodly. Right? There's a lot of people who have set themselves against David, and David could compare himself with them and say, see, I'm not as bad as them. Lord, you should hear my prayer and save me because these people are really bad and I'm not so bad. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He prays for the Lord to put a watch over his mouth, to post a guard at his lips. That's a powerful prayer. Don't you think that's something that we all need? Before David can pray for God to judge the wicked, which he's going to pray, he has to first deal with his own sin. And the first place he goes is his tongue. Is that surprising? It really shouldn't be. I think David knew and understood some simple, basic truths uh, truths that are written about elsewhere in Scripture, for instance, well, in fact, maybe the best example is in the book of James in the New Testament. Of course, James wasn't written yet. But David knew the principle that James was going to write even before James wrote it. What does James write? James chapter 3, If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. A little bit later, James says in the same section, but no man can tame the tongue. So if anyone can tame their tongue, they're perfect, but no man can tame the tongue. He says it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now the other night I was watching a documentary on the king cobra in India. It was a fascinating, um, fascinating uh, documentary. It was really interesting. And scientists have discovered um, that these incredibly venomous snakes don't usually kill human beings when they bite them. I mean, it's one of the most poisonous snakes as far as the most venom of any snake on the globe. It's absolutely deadly. The toxin that they have in their, in their, uh, their mouth is, is an extremely powerful neurotoxin, and they use it to kill their prey when they hunt and they attack and they inject this venom and it, and it goes into the, the, the nervous system and it ends up shutting down the, the nervous system so that your, 
the brain can't communicate instructions to the lungs. And so the lungs stop working because the, 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 the electrical system is basically shut down there. and It doesn't work. And so you don't breathe and the animal suffocates to death or whatever, the human, whatever it is. It, it's been. But the interesting thing is that, that as, as the population of India continues to encroach on the territory of these, of these uh, snakes, which can grow up to like 15 feet in length, um, and as, as, as a human population continues to encroach, they, they continue to have encounters with them. And this, uh, this show was, was looking at that, some, some situations where they, the humans were having encounters with these snakes. And they said it was interesting that there really haven't been that many deaths from these snakes. They normally don't kill human beings. And the reason for that, as far as they can understand, is that the king cobra has the ability to control how much venom they inject with their fangs when they bite. And they can actually bite and not inject any venom at all if they don't want to. They have absolute control over that. And they said on this, on this documentary that that's usually what they do with people when they bite people because people are not their prey. They're not interested in, in, in killing them and eating them like they do when they hunt other snakes. Apparently the rat snake is a delicacy to the king cobra. Um, but they hunt them. They don't hunt on people. <laughs> so if they do bite a person, they normally don't inject any venom because, or they inject very little. And they said as a result, most people don't die when they're bitten by a king cobra, even though it's one of the most venomous snakes in the world. Which is fascinating. These snakes have absolute control when they bite and they can inject their venom or they can withhold it. Now I would say the same thing might be said of us. James says it, our tongues are full of deadly poison. David you know, mentioned that back in Psalm 140. The poison of asps is under their lips, verse 3, referring to his enemies who are slandering him. Poisonous tongues. Paul quotes that in Romans 3 as proof that we're all sinners. Because we have poisonous tongues. We have uh, uh, lips that speak poisonous words. The problem is we can't control the poison the way the king cobra does. So we end up creating all sorts of death and destruction because we carelessly use our tongues. And then we sometimes maliciously use our tongues. But what's interesting here is David doesn't make a commitment He doesn't get out his journal and say, on this day, September 27th, 2020, I have determined to control my tongue. That's a good commitment. It's great, I guess. That's not what David does. What does he do here? He prays that Yahweh would set a guard over his mouth and keep watch over his tongue. Think about this, though. David is the victim of slander and lies. Right? His enemies, his opponents, have lied and slandered and attacked him falsely. How easy would it be for David to reason, you know what? I'm just going to fight fire with fire. These people are coming after me. They're saying things about me. I can, two can play that game. I can take care of them. I can deal with them. Isn't that how we often think? We need to go on the offensive. We need to attack when we're under attack. Fight fire with fire. 
Now, I'm, I'm really not trying to get political today. But it does concern me when I hear Christians arguing for a political candidate who uses lies, deception, and slander against his opponents. And when Christians justify that by saying something along these lines, that's what the other side always does. And it's nice to have someone who fights for us for a change. Even if he fights dirty. Well, the reason that bothers me is that it seems to reveal a particular perspective. That it's okay to slander. It's okay to lie. It's okay to use harsh words. It's okay to attack with our tongues as long as the, other, as long as the opponent is guilty of it first. Well, the reality is that's exactly what David fears. He has come under attack. He realizes how easy it would be for him to lash out with his tongue. And so what does he do? He says, Lord, help me. Guard my tongue. Don't let me use my tongue the way my enemies are using theirs. Don't let me turn into a slanderer just because I've been slandered. Don't let me lash out in anger just because someone else has spoken angrily toward me. David's desire David's desire is that he would not be like all those around him. Let everyone around him sin with their tongues, but by God's grace, he will not. Let everyone around him speak lies and slander. By, great, by God's grace, he will speak the truth. Let everyone around him spread gossip or betray confidence. By God's grace, he will reject hurtful words and remain discreet. As God's people, we have been called to a higher standard of speech. That is what David desires. But it's not easy. We won't pretend that it's easy. We're not going to pretend that we don't struggle with these things. David doesn't. His prayer here is evidence that he knows his own weakness. Again, we're not going to be hypocrites. We're not going to say, well... You know, God, these people out here are really, really bad, and, and you take care of them while all the while denying our own sin. No, David recognizes that he has a tendency to be false. He has a, a tendency to use his tongue for evil. So what's the solution? The solution is to pray for God's grace. How can David offer up daily worship and submission to God with his tongue if he's then using his tongue throughout the day for evil? Something else that I think... Again, James writes explicitly there in James 3, but David is, is, is bearing it out here in this psalm. James says this, or rather it's James chapter 4. Uh, James says this in James 4 verse 9, with the tongue, with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. David in verses 1 and 2 has committed himself to faithfully worshiping God to blessing the Lord constantly with his tongue. How then can he use his mouth to curse or lie or abuse others? 
James goes on to say in that very same passage, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. This is exactly what David is concerned about here. He's concerned that after he has blessed God, he would then curse men. This is a serious concern. And again, as we see, what is the solution to the problem? Well, the first thing is we need God to put a guard over our mouth. James makes it very clear, and David here, I think, seems to understand it. This is not something we can conquer on our own. Trying harder won't work. Being more determined won't work. We need God and His grace. We're going to have to pray for God's grace to deal with our sinful speech. But there's something else that David moves on to here in the next verse. It's a related issue, but it's another part of the body that he focuses on here, and that is his heart. We continue the portrait of the faithful man here. Not only does his mouth constantly under guard, but his heart is not bent towards sin. I put this in the negative just because of the way that David speaks of it here. Look at verse 4. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity, and do not let me eat of their delicacies. So David turns his attention to his heart. And here's where we run into a real problem. Because our hearts, our hearts are naturally bent towards sin. And that's the foundational issue we have to face. We don't sin because we have bad examples. I mean, it's true that every one of us, no matter what kind of parents you had, every one of us grew up with parents who set bad examples for us. Even if your parents love God, even if your parents were, were born-again Christians who loved God and were faithful, they set bad examples for you. How do I know? Because they're sinners. So they did set a bad example. But it's not their fault that you sin. You don't sin because you had a bad example set. You don't sin because you have a bad environment. A lot of people think that today. A lot of excuses for, for wrong behavior and saying, well, it's just that they just have a bad environment. Not, not enough opportunities. Or, or they just, you know, the circumstances around them, not enough positive role models or something. They, they, they just don't ever have a real chance to do what's right. No, that's not what the Bible says. When you boil it all down, the Bible says we sin for one reason, because we want to sin. Deep down in our hearts, that's what we want. David said it in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David said, it's been with me since birth. It's been with me since the beginning. This, this natural bent in my heart towards sin. It goes all the way back to the beginning. From the day I was born, it's been this way. And so what happens? Well, temptation comes along, and because our hearts are bent towards sin, when the temptation comes along, we sin. David understood this very well, didn't he? You know the life of David? David saw beautiful Bathsheba. And because of the bent of his heart, he sinned. He saw that her pregnancy then posed a threat to his reputation. And he sinned again. Adultery, murder, 
absolutely wicked. But why on earth would David, this godly man who loved the Lord, who, who depended on Him fiercely, why would he commit such things? Why would he do such wicked deeds? Because of his heart. That's it. That's the foundation of it. That's the source of it. His heart was bent toward evil. And so what does he pray in verse 4? Yahweh, don't bend my heart toward sin. In other words, bend my heart away from sin. I don't want to have a heart that bends towards sin. I want to bend away from it. He's asking for a transformation of his heart. That God would change it. That God would turn his heart from following sin and following selfish desires. Notice how he speaks in the last line of the verse. Do not let me eat of their, referring to these, these evil men, these workers. Don't let me eat of their delicacies, he says. I think what David is doing here is he's recognizing there's something about sin that entices us. So there's something about sin that corresponds to the desire of our heart. David says, I don't want to get caught up in that. I don't want to become easy prey for temptation. Don't let me eat of their delicacies. Don't let me be carried away. Don't let me be enticed into sin. The, the issue is primarily not the temptations that are around us. Because if it wasn't for our hearts, wanting wanting what those temptations are offering, we would never be tempted by them. If it wasn't for the fact that there is something in our hearts that desires that, so it appeals to us. The primary issue is that we love sinful things. Or maybe, to put it another way, we love things in a sinful way. Because sometimes it's not sinful things that we love, it's just that we're loving them wrong. We're loving them more than we should. We're loving them more than God. But in either case, we make ourselves easy prey. That seems to be what David is concerned about here in verse 4. So it's coupled with his concern about his tongue. How is he going to guard his tongue? How is, how is he going to prevent that evil speech from coming out? Well, yes, God has to protect it, but he realizes his heart is also the issue here. He can't separate these two things. The reason we sin so easily with our mouths is that our hearts are full of selfishness and bitterness toward others. Jesus made that very clear when he said it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so the mouth tends to reveal what's in our heart. So David doesn't pray for the one without the other. Yes, he prays for God to guard his heart, or I'm sorry, guard his tongue. But then he says, Lord, change my heart. There are two prayers that go hand in hand. Lord, put a watch over my mouth. And Lord, turn my heart away from loving any evil thing. This is David's prayer. A lot more that could be said, and we're going to look at them next week as we finish the psalm. We won't have time to do it today. But let's consider these three elements that are before us, the posture of a faithful man. Are your hands 
raised toward heaven? Do you live each day in full dependence on God? Do you pray with urgency and passion? Prayer shouldn't be something we just do at mealtimes or when we come to church or when we want to receive something from God. It's a vital part of our fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, the calves of the lip are a truer sacrifice than the calves of the stall. It's an important aspect of worship as we come to the Lord regularly, routinely. Do you pray? Are your hands raised toward heaven? And what about your lips? Has the Lord put a watch over your tongue? David prayed that it might be so. Maybe you've lied or spoken falsely about another person. Maybe it was someone who mistreated you. So you justified that. Maybe you've broken trust with someone. You shared something that they shared with you in confidence. Maybe you spoke in anger. Caught up in the heat of the moment. Whatever it is, confess it as sin. Seek to be made right with God and with the person you've sinned against. And pray for God's grace to bridle our tongues, to set a watch over them. And I would say this at the same time, we need to examine our hearts openly and honestly before the Lord. I'll give you another Spurgeon quote just for good measure. I think he encapsulates David's um, emotional state here, David's perspective. Here's what Spurgeon says. Good men are horrified at the thought of sinning as others do. The fear of it drives them to their knees. That's what we have here. When you see your own sinful tendency, before we can ever pray that God would judge the wicked, first that ought to drive us to our knees and pray, Lord, change my heart. Lord, guard my tongue. That's David's heart. That's David's prayer. May it be our prayer as well. Let me just say this as we close. I, I feel it must point this out again, remind us of this again, that only God's grace can overcome our sinful hearts. So the question that we all have to ask is, have we received God's grace? One of the things that's very clear from the psalm is David understands that he does not have the power in himself to deal with his own sin, his own heart, his own mouth, his own uh, uh, tendencies toward evil. Without God's grace, we are completely at sin's mercy. But God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Christ's death, we have God's grace poured out. This grace is so great that even the greatest sinner may find forgiveness and life in Christ. And so if you've never turned to Christ, if you've never repented of your sins, if you've never cried out for mercy and forgiveness, let me invite you to come to Him today. to Receive His grace and begin to see His transforming power in your heart. That which David prayed for here, it begins when we trust Christ. Let's pray and ask God to deal with us by His grace. Father, we thank You for this reminder as we see it in Psalm 141, just from David's example, 
David was all too aware of his own sinfulness. And we know it. We stop and think for a moment or two about our own life, about our own hearts, certainly about our own mouths. None of us can claim, none of us can claim that we have been perfect in the use of our tongue. Gentle, kind, truthful, good, loving, discreet, honest, faithful. We've all fallen short. Thank you for the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I pray that if there's one who's never repented of their sin and trusted in Christ, that today they would cry out for mercy and for healing. To know that their sins are forgiven. To know that their life can be transformed by the power of God. I pray that they would cry out to you today. For those of us as Christians who come fully aware of our own sinfulness, Lord, you've reminded us of that today. Remind us of your mercy. That we might daily offer up the sacrifice of praise and prayer to you. That we might seek your grace. Not our own efforts. We might seek your grace to overcome sin. We might seek your grace to protect our tongues, to guard them so that we don't use them in a hurtful or wrong way. We might seek your grace to change our hearts, to turn us away from that natural inclination to sin. Instead, to give us a love for you and for the things that are good. And Father, I pray you would do this work in us today. We thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen.